Section 29 of Old and New Masters by Robert Lynn. Chapter 22, Swinburne, Part 1, The Exotic Bird. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Swinburne was an absurd character. He was a bird of showy strut and plumage. One could not but admire his glorious feathers. But as soon as he began to molt, and he had already molted excessively, by the time Watts Dutton took him under his roof, one saw how very little body there was underneath. Mr. Goss, in his biography, compares Swinburne to a colored and exotic bird, a scarlet and azure macaw, to be precise, and the comparison remains in one's imagination. Watts Dutton, finding the poor creature molted and off its feed, carried it down to Putney, resolved to domesticate it. He watched over it as a farmer's wife watches over a sick hen. He taught it to eat out of his hand. He taught it to speak, to repeat things after him. Even, God save the queen. Some people say that he ruined the bird by these methods. Others maintain that on the contrary, but for him the bird would have died of a disease akin to the staggers. They say, moreover, that the tameness and docility of the bird while he was looking after it have been greatly exaggerated. And they deny that it was entirely bald of its old gay feathers. There, you have a brief statement of the great Swinburne question, which it seems likely will last as long as the name of Swinburne is remembered. It is not a question of any importance, but that will not prevent us from arguing it hotly. The world takes a malicious joy in jibing at men of genius and their associates, and a generous joy in defending them from jibes. Further, the discussion that interests the greatest number of people is discussion that has come down to a personal level. Ten people will be bored by an argument as to the nature of Swinburne's genius, for one who will be bored by an argument as to the nature of Swinburne's submissiveness to Watts Dutton. Was Watts Dutton, in a phrase deprecated by the editors of a recent book of letters, a kind of amiable Bengali? Did he allow Swinburne to have a will of his own? Did Swinburne and going to Putney go to the devil? Or did not Watts Dutton rather play the part of the Good Samaritan? Unfortunately, all those who have hitherto attempted to describe the relations of the two men have succeeded only in making them both appear ridiculous. Mr. Goss, a man of letters with a sting, has done it cleverly. The others, like the editors to whom I have referred, have done it inadvertently. They write too solemnly. If Swinger had lost a trouser button, they would not have felt it inappropriate, one feels, for the Archbishop of Canterbury to hurry to the scene and go down on his knees on the floor to look for it. Well, no doubt, Swinburne was an absurd character, and so was Watts Dutton, and so perhaps is the Archbishop of Canterbury. Most of us have at one time or another fallen under the spell of Swinburne, owing to the genius with which he turned into music the enthusiasm of the heretic. He fluttered through the sooty and sabbatic air of the Victorian era, uttering melodious cries of protest against everything in morals, politics, and religion for which Queen Victoria seemed to stand. He was like a rebellious boy who takes more pleasure in breaking the Sabbath than in the voice of nightingales. He was one of the few Englishmen of genius who have understood the French zest for shocking the Borghese. He had little of his own to express, but he discovered the heretic's gospel in Gautier and Baudelaire and set it forth in English in music that he might have learned from the sirens who sang to Ulysses. He reveled in blasphemous and licentious fancies that would have made Byron's hair stand on end. 
nowadays much of the blasphemy and licentiousness seems flat and unprofitable as government beer but in those days it seemed hideous wine and beautiful as medieval tale there was always in swinburne more of pose than of passion that is why we have to some extent grown tired of him but in the atmosphere of victorianism his pose was original and astonishing he was anti-christ in a world that had annexed christ rather than served him nowadays there is such an abundance of antichrist that the part seems hardly worth playing by a man of first-rate ability consequently we have to remember the circumstances in which they were written in order to appreciate to the full many of swinburne's poems and even some of the amusing outbursts of heresy in his letters still even to-day one cannot but enjoy the gusto with which he praised trelawney shelley's and byron's trelawney the most splendid old man i have seen since landor and my own grandfather of the excellence of his principles i will say but this that i did think by the grace of saban unto whom and not unto me be the glory and thanksgiving amen selah i was a good atheist and a good republican but in the company of this magnificent old rebel a lifelong incarnation of the divine right of insurrection i felt myself by comparison a theist and a royalist in another letter he writes in the same gay undergraduateish strain of marriage when i hear that a personal friend has fallen into matrimonial courses i feel the same sorrow as if i had heard of his lapsing into theism a holy sorrow unmixed with anger for who am i to judge him i think at such a sight as the preacher was it not baxter at the sight of a thief or murderer led to the gallows there but for the grace of goes a c s and drop a tear over fallen man there was it is only fair to say a great deal in swinburne's insurrectionism that was noble or at least in tune with nobleness but it is impossible to persuade oneself that he was ever among the genuine poets of liberty he loved insurrectionism for its own sake he reveled in it in the spirit of a rhetorician rather than of a martyr he was a glorious humbug a sort of inverted pecksniff even his republicanism cannot have gone very deep if it is true as certain of his editors declare that having been born within the precincts of Bagavria, was an event not entirely displeasing to a man of his aristocratic leanings swinburne it seems was easily pleased one of his proudest boasts was that he and victor hugo bore a close resemblance to each other in one respect both of them were almost dead when they were born certainly not expected to live an hour there was also one great difference between them swinburne never grew up his letters some of which messrs hake and compton rickett have given us are interesting and amusing but they do not increase his one's opinion of swinburne's mind he reveals himself as a sensitive critic in his remarks on the proofs of rossetti's poems and his comments on morris and in his references to tennyson's dramas but as a rule his intemperance of praise and blame makes his judgments appear mere eccentricities of the blood he could not praise falstaff for instance without speaking of the ever dear and honored presence of falstaff and applauding the sweet sound ripe toothsome wholesome kernel of falstaff's character as well as humor he even defied the opinion of his idol victor hugo and contended that falstaff was not really a coward all the world would agree that swinburne was right in glorifying falstaff he glorified him however on the wrong plane 
he mixed his planes in the same way in his pan over captain webb's feet in swimming the english channel i consider it he said as the greatest glory that has befallen england since the publication of shelley's greatest poem whatever that may have been this is shouting not speech but then as i have said swinburne never grew up he never learned to speak he was ever a shouter the question that has so far not been settled is did watts dutton put his hand over swinburne's mouth and forcefully stop him from shouting as we know he certainly stopped him from swearing before ladies except in french but as for shouting swinburne had already exhausted himself when he went to the pines meanwhile questions of this sort have begun to absorb us to such a degree that we are apt to forget that swinburne after all was a man of genius a man with an entrancing gift of melody spiritually an echo perhaps but aesthetically a discoverer a new creature the most amazing aesthetician of our time end of section twenty nine